Hello and welcome to another Bioprocess Insider Expression platform. This is the fifth episode so far and again we are going back to the topic of cell and gene therapies. I mean the sheer investment and innovation in this sector over the past couple of years means it's always going to be a hot topic of discussion on this medium and of course elsewhere. For this episode, I was lucky enough to speak with Adelaide Goldberg, Global Digital, Social and Commercial Innovation Health Sciences and Wellness Leader at Ernst & Young. Now, he has spearheaded the development of Pointelis, a tech solution aimed at supporting safe, secure and timely access to individualised cell and gene therapies and has a lot of insights into advanced therapy makers and the issues surrounding the manufacture of such products. Now, as always, if you want to leave feedback, you can either do so on the platform you use to listen to this, or indeed um, go to my website, Bioprocess Insider. Uh, if you just want to get in touch, then hit me up at LinkedIn, Dan Stanton, you'll find me, I have dark curly hair, or email me at dan.stanton at informa.com, and that's informa spelt I-N-F-O-R-M-A. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Adelaide Goldberg. I'm really intrigued to get a bit of background on yourself. How did you end up, first of all, at Ernst & Young, and secondly, specialising in the cell and gene therapy space? Two very good questions. I actually joined professional services 21 years ago in Hong Kong. I uh, am originally from the media industry. I was the television producer <laughs> at the time and actually joined uh, the practice of uh, a, a media practice that they were setting up and, and was actually leading a, a digital design practice across the Asia Pacific region. Uh, and that's what I was kind of, that's what I was brought in to do. Um, the thread through my life has really been digital rather than the uh, the, the, the depth of knowledge that one might find in the sciences behind some of these medicines. And so I've really applied kind of, kind of the digitalization and how we might think of things differently through a digital lens to many different problems over my career and found my way into cell and gene therapies through some client work uh, that we uh, conducted actually here in, in the United States. And we, we really were asking the question, how would their world change uh, uh, if their drug portfolio was starting to include individualized cell and gene therapies. And we, we, we start to, started to discover, you know, it's a very, very different operational world in the cell and gene therapy space than in traditional medicines, uh, not just uh, from the clinical trial side, but from the supply chain side, from the manufacturing side, from the commercialization side. And we actually, you know, took a pretty deep dive in, and discovered that um, the digital requirements of that future world were going to be quite significant. And so my focus has been really looking at it from that perspective. We were, I'm not definitely not the scientist, <laughs> definitely not the one inventing the great medicines that are currently underway, but certainly have become uh, quite bullish on uh, the, the journeys that they're on, the development that, that are underway and really recognizing that we're really on the cusp of something completely different. And so, you know, I, I, my, my, 
lens has always been, you know, how could we make these more successful by, by answering some of the digital aspects uh, that will that they are going to require and will certainly be required to see them at scale. So that's that's kind of where I started, and that was almost five years ago, and I've really been focused almost exclusively on on that question. That's really interesting um, because um, in my capacity as a journalist in the space, I'm often talking to the scientists and the people who are, are creating things that I can't even quite get my head around. But um, speaking to someone yourself who's um, really taken that deep dive into the industry uh, from a, um, well, as you say, a, a digital and data um, uh, point of view, um, hopefully we can sort of hammer home some of the, um, the the deeper issues that are sometimes overlooked by the uh, men and women in white coats and um, <laughs> plastic goggles. Um, you said you started about five years ago. Um, that was, I mean, if we look at the cell and gene therapy space back then, um, that's before um, the first CAR-Ts uh, appeared on the market about, you know, 2017, the, the advent of Chimera, of Kim Raya and Yaskata came on board. What was the landscape like back then? And so, I mean, cell and gene, the stem cells has been, have been around for many, many years, right? So one, one, one might argue uh, that the cell and gene therapy community, you know, started, you know, even two decades ago. It's been really kind of this fast forward, as I understand from the science that have led to um, you know, what more can be done um, uh, through the compute and analytical capabilities, our better understanding of the of the of, of our DNA and our and the sequencing, what we can be doing with T cells. And so we've seen a, in, in 2017, 2016, 2017, 2018, a rapid ex acceleration of, of discovery of what this science could possibly be. If you actually we did a, a, a bit of a study. You know the funding that was going into uh, the development of these types of technologies was growing at about 33% a year, um, and so there uh, were uh, there were at the time you know a rapid acceleration again through large large investments of capital and and, and again a large investment in, in kind of the new clinical trials to discover what some of these new types of technologies can do and 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 the, the kind of the, the biotech space where all of this was happening. Uh, really, I think fueled a, a great deal of that growth that led towards, you know, Novartis coming out with Kimraya or, uh, or, you know, Gilead coming out with Yoscarta. But all of these actually started in these small biotech companies that were later acquired and then commercialized or are being commercialized through through these big, large biopharma companies. But, but I mean, you, you talk about um, the lessons learned from uh, stem cells and 20 years of development there. But um I, I don't know, maybe you don't picture it this way, but I, I picture the sort of the, um, the uh, arrival of CAR-Ts and the, the uh, handful of gene therapy products that have been approved since as a sort of different generation of advanced therapeutics. Um, I mean, there, there's agree. obviously the, the money's behind it as well, but when, when did that money really start being pumped in? And um, what makes this sort of 2017 onwards um, uh, why was that more successful than the previous period? Uh, I think the I mean, I'm looking at some charts right now. The money really started to pour in in 2014. Uh, and as, as I said, kind of was growing at 33% a year all the way, uh, you know, until up until COVID. And, and, then, and then beyond, it's, it's kind of slumped and has come back. But it really started, I think, in 2014. Uh, that uh, was where people were starting to ask questions like, what more can we be doing, right? 
and you know the kind of the uh, explorations of mRNA as an example, the explorations of the CAR T, uh, the explorations of some of these other uh, gene therapies that have now been commercialized, 2016, 17, and 18, really were um, kind of kind of at that inflection point, I would say, and I would say 2014. And I'm, I'm going to um, dig in a little bit deeper here, if you don't. Yeah, please. I, I don't have the charts, but I do love um, statistics and uh, analysis of data like this. So 2014, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back on the spot here, but I'm assuming there was possibly some positive readouts with um, uh, what was going to be Kim Raya. Um, and at the same time, maybe sort of the first sort of... Uh, bits of evidence that mRNA may have be may become what it is uh, through uh, again positive readouts at Moderna but is there anything specific that really triggered the um, advanced funding um, around that time or is it just what I'm saying here I, I think it's what you're saying I think I think you've nailed it there were some early successful readouts uh, of of that there were advancements in uh, what we could start doing with gene and gene technology so CRISPR was on the horizon at that time and so there, we were starting to see um, the uh, kind of what the possibilities were. And I, and I think that was really kind of the inflection point where kind of the investment, the investment curve really kicked in. And um, I haven't mentioned it yet, but um, before that, we had, did have the first sort of, um, um, like I say, new generation of advanced therapies in the form of uh, Dendrion's Provenge. And exactly. now that that's obviously had a, a bunch of issues with it, specifically around the manufacturing. Um, did you notice any sort of uh, um, caution within the industry regarding the sector because of lessons learned there at all? I think as with all uh, new and emerging technologies, there are speed bumps, right? Um, we see that with self-driving or autonomous vehicles, for example. Right. Um, and, and so forth. Uh, we, we've seen that kind of fits and starts with electric vehicles themselves. And, and so, um, you know, there are always the early explorers and Dendrion was one of those and some of these earlier readouts. But I think it was the, um, the success, the potential of success and the impacts that, that these types of products were starting to demonstrate in terms of health outcomes that really has pushed the needle forward or the pedal forward to explore further about what more could be done and, and, um, and, and, and help us to, you know, better realize the potential of, 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 of these types of therapies, even early CAR T programs, you know, uh, were, were, were risky, uh, in terms of reinfusing, you know, depleting and then reinfusing kind of the new T cells in, in the body. But we're now starting to work through a lot of the, um, complications that these therapies are, 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 have, have kind of introduced to how we treat. And, and again, it's through the further development and acceleration of that, we're getting to, um, I think, better, better outcomes. And again, COVID is a really good example around uh, the advancements of mRNA technology, right? You know, there hadn't really been a, a, a produced mRNA therapy that had been out in the market. And now it's saving the world from a COVID uh, pandemic. And, and we're now seeing kind of the results of, of of some of that work that was happening um, kind of the last decade, uh, now, now demonstrating itself here in, in, a, in quite remarkable ways. I think we're gonna be looking at mRNA technologies in, in, in very different ways looking moving forward, given, given the experiences that we're having with COVID as an example. 
I, I think you're right. I mean, um, from no commercialized products to two on the market within the space of three or four weeks, um, it's it's kind of incredible. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize and what you're saying there is um, these products or mRNA as a technology has been in development for well, 12, 15 years almost. Um, and really what the public is seeing is a, um, a fast tracked approach to getting these on the market. But what the industry is seeing is um, years and years of development finally coming to fruition. With um, We'll get to COVID properly um, in a moment, but I, I'm wondering if um, you can sort of describe the cell and gene therapy space, uh, uh, you know, 12 months ago, just before the pandemic hit from a, well, both the financial and from a, a clinical sort of perspective. Um, Pre-pandemic for cell and gene therapies, you know, our, our perspective, it was very, very much on a positive trajectory. Um, that's one of the reasons why EY and, and, and our organization really focused on uh, kind of the exam question around how can we help the industry uh, achieve uh, great success with these therapies at scale. At, 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 at that time, you know, they were you know, types of products and there were several, many that had already been commercialized that were starting to demonstrate success of these new therapies. You mentioned Kimraya and Yaskarda, but you know, Takeda's Alofi cell, so Genzma, Luxterna. There, were, there was actually kind of a, a, a this next generation of, of, of therapies were actually now hitting the market and demonstrating, <laughs> demonstrating really incredible outcomes for the types of things that they were focused on. We also saw that the clinical trial pipeline was growing dramatically as well. So the funding of development, as I was mentioning before, translated into um, you know, more than 2,600 different clinical trials underway, uh, which, yeah, which was quite, quite dramatic as well. And so I, I would say before, um, before the pandemic, we were already bullish on where this was going to go. And the industry, you know, we, we, you know, the industry, you know, is now was starting to say, this is kind of the next generation of what's coming down the road, right? Small molecule, large molecule biologics, and, and now cell and gene therapies. And, 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 and so kind of pre-pandemic, already bullish and the industry itself was uh, on a very, very positive trajectory. And you were starting to see, you know, those many of those clinical trials weren't done by large biopharma companies, but by, um, you know, the particularly early phase one, phase two trials by an, a number of large biotech companies that were out there inventing um, and developing, further developing new, new, new technologies for, for, for treating some pretty horrific uh, conditions. And then again, um, you know, there were some major, major acquisitions during that pre-pandemic period as well in the cell and gene therapy space. So instantly, I think of Bristol Myers and Cell Gene, uh, but you know, lots of other deal making took place as well. So when the pandemic hits, regarding investments, M and A activity in the cell and gene therapy space, was there a sudden drop off, or you know, did companies were they being risk averse? What happened? So there was a there was a hiatus of some of those investments. Uh, what we're starting to see today, though, they're coming back. They're coming back in very significant ways, and kind of a, kind of starting at the beginning of of, the, of this year, the deal activity has really started to heat up once again, and I think quite dramatically in the in the cell and gene therapy space. So either through acquisitions or licensing from some of these small biotech companies to um, towards these large biopharma companies that will help them to commercialize this technology. So there was a gap. 
you know, probably a nine, a nine month gap uh, in terms of let's take, <laughs> we had to take a break as the world was focused on other things. But, I, you know, st- you know, from JP Morgan and onwards in looking at the level of deal activity, it's now starting to increase dramatically. And do you think, I mean, we've already mentioned um, the approvals of Moderna and Pfizer's mRNA vaccines, but do you think that the um, the expedited um, developments that took place during COVID and the, I guess, the world's focus on the biopharma sector, do you think that's um, helped stoke investment further now that it looks like we're getting back into a sense of normality? So I think... Short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> the, uh, the the um, you know we're, we're, we've we've so there's been quite the effort focused and I, and I think and again a second lesson learned from COVID is that kind of the world coming together to solve a problem and with the right level of resources we could tackle most anything and, and those two examples of the two vaccines and you know what was done with AstraZeneca and others really accelerated um, the success of of what we could be doing as an industry on behalf of the world. And it's interesting if you start to read now some of the um, uh, now new press releases around where some organizations are, are, are keen to start focusing. Why aren't we focusing on HIV AIDS with some of these technologies? Why aren't we focusing? So it's not just kind of the oncology and the challenges that we're having there. It's like there's now starting to answer, ask some questions uh, through this last year. What more could we be doing? And I'm pretty excited by um, the uh, kind of the, the kind of where we might be able to refocus some of the things we've learned over this last year and 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 have it kind of you know addressing not just some of the serious diseases like um, uh, cancer for example or or you know other sort of hereditary types of challenges but now starting to look at some lifestyle diseases um, and and others um, and applying, um, this technology to to over, overcome them, I think, is a, a big benefit from what we've been able to learn over this last year. Well, well it seems to me, and um, tell me if I'm wrong here, that um, the pre-pandemic, the main issues regarding cell and gene therapies were, well, the cost to manufacture and the, the, the price to the um, patient. And um, a very big one from my point of view, the manufacturing complexity and the, diff- and the whole supply chain um, surrounding that. Um, that did you, did you see if, how do I put this? Has the pandemic again um, broken down some of these barriers, at least, uh, in, well, at least in the mind of the public, but <laughs> more importantly, from the industry's point of view? Well, and what we studied kind of pre-pandemic, kind of what, was had been our focus in in terms of what were going to be some of the critical challenges of uh, selling of of actually scaling cell and gene therapies. It was easy to manage a clinical trial. It was easy to manage fifty or hundred patients going through one of these types of products or some, one of these programs. You know, and and if we actually started to look at some of these earlier indications that have been approved for some of this, again, patient numbers were very small. We we actually said, let's imagine ten years. From now, you know that these become, you know, mainstream therapies. These are not last lines of defense, but actually, you know, are going to uh, be used as first line treatments. Uh, we, we again, we we took a study uh, as to yeah, an, an estimate or a, as to kind of what might be the patient populations kind of in 2027. You know, on the individualized therapy space, you know, we we could imagine in 2027 there being 750,000 patients being treated a year on this. And so we stopped and said, wait a minute, for that to happen, and 
particularly for individualized cell and gene therapies, you know, there's a lot of big challenges that need to get resolved. One, one clearly is manufacturing, as you mentioned. Biopharma companies are not set up to manufacture products of one, <laughs> the N of one or the SKU of one. And if we, you know, we kind of uh, bifurcate between the allogeneic, uh, you know, the one for many and, and the autologous, the one, the, the kind of the N of one or the one for one type of product, just that N of one product. And if we, even if we're somewhat near that 750,000 patient mark in kind of five or six years, that's a very, very different world <laughs> to what manufacturing is currently set up to do today. And that's a very, very, very different world from what the supply chain or the value chain needs to be a very, very different world. And we now need to uh, kind of retool and build infrastructure to manage a bi-directional supply chain. You know, the, the ability to get uh, for these individualized therapies, you know, the kind of the blood or tissue from the patient into a manufacturing process and having that be part of the product, if you will, and have that product come back to that individual. That's a very different world, not just uh, on the manufacturing side, but on the, on the supply chain side and the healthcare side that needs to be retooled to make that happen. And again, while we're managing, you know, 50 or 100 or 150 patients a month, you know, or 1,000 or 5,000 a year, that kind of going from 5,000 to 750,000 is, is, is a very, very different digital problem that needs to be addressed. Um, Part A, Part B, you know, that needs to, we, you know, we could spend some time thinking about is 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 also the reimbursement model as well. I, you know, we can figure out those complexities, but we also need to figure out, you know, what are going to be the means and methods for actually paying for that. And I think um, we're going to start to see an acceleration on outcomes-based uh, reimbursement models really trigger the uh, ability to open up um, these types of therapies uh, for for the, those numbers of patients looking forward. With that all in mind, it seems there are more and more companies that are bypassing the autologist routes and looking at the allogeneic model as a, a more sustainable way of producing and supplying um, advanced therapies. Do you, do you kind of think that the the personalized medicine, the individual um, autologous approach is a kind of stopgap for the future of cell and gene therapies. Is that, is that just what we're experiencing now while we're still coming to terms with it? Because I, I can't see how it can be sustainable in the long term. I, I agree it may not be sustainable, but I think it's always going to be the leading foot in the development of future products. Um, I, you know, I, today, you know, we may not have imagined uh, 10 or 15 years ago, this is where we would be standing today. I, I think we're going to continue down the path of using autologous type therapies to be really our in innovation edge. It's going to be those, um, those experiences that will allow us to uh, continue to invent new therapies that will then later be uh, migrated into more of an allogeneic type of model. And, you know, when kind of our studies of, of mRNA, you know, and, 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 you know, one of the organizations that, you know, is behind uh, one of the vaccines, BioNTech, you know, there was uh, a discussion that uh, I had uh, with their CEO at one point, uh, Unger, and he was thinking about there still needing to be kind of a recombination of the building blocks to make that happen. So there may be 12 or 15 different um, ingredients that will go into a particular product for an individual, and it'll still need to be combined in different ways for a specific individual. So it, I, it may not be necessarily 
a full allogeneic approach, which is a one for many, 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 more likely to be kind of a recombination of some of the core building blocks to make it more personalized than it, than it currently is today as, as an individualized therapy. So I answer your question. I think there's going to be a middle of the road. I don't think we're going to see the volumes and the mass production that you're currently seeing on large and small molecules. I still think we're going to have um, kind of the innovation edge be autologous and somewhere in the middle, we're going to end up with the ability to recombine what we know to make uh, products uh, work for a specific individual. I'm going to get in there before anyone else does and um, coin this as hybrid cell and gene therapies. Um. <laughs> there we go. I, I, I own it. I love that. I love that. Exactly right. Um, I, I do have um, one final question on this. Um, what does industry need to do to um, to properly advance this sector? I mean, we've talked about uh, deal making. We've talked about, well, we, we, we broached the partnership approach. But um, how does industry move forward on the back of pandemic to um, really make cell and gene therapies available to the masses and uh, available across various indications other than cancer? I think there's... Um four big things that we've really been focused on. Uh, and number one, irrespective of whether it's autologous or the hybrid model, um, what we've learned is that uh, to solve these complexities, we need a very, very different level of collaboration that we as a biopharma industry, you know, have, 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 a, have a long ways to go. We have a lot more to learn on how to do that better. And I think one of our biggest takeaways uh, through COVID uh, was, our ability to collaborate in, in new and unprecedented ways solves, uh, helps us to overcome and solve challenges that we didn't have before. So collaboration being number one. The, sec the second uh, is, and again, learning from COVID is just the resi resiliency of the supply chain or the value chain uh, to get this working um, and working well. Uh, we're, we're, there's been significant investments that have gone into Kind of retooling the supply chain for the for vaccine distribution, uh, the, the the cold chain or the hyper cold chain uh, distribution, and and kind of how it ultimately is going to be reaching around the world is going to I think enable a great deal more for cell and gene therapies. I think that's going to be a, a byproduct that that will benefit from. And we've learned you know the res how how important the resiliency is for these supply chains to to make that happen, and the digital investments that have gone into that I think are going to take take us a long way. I think the third piece um, uh, that, that's important is really the acknowledgement that these new technologies um, work and work well. And mRNA, I think, is going to be something we're going to hang our hat on for a long time to say, wait a minute, you know, let's trust more in some of these, these new and innovative therapies and, and figure out how to, how to bring them together. And then I think the, the last one, and uh, which is a, a significant benefit, is kind of been the rebuilding of trust on behalf of our industry. And trust, um, you know, it, it, it goes a long, long way in terms of bringing these new and innovative therapies to market. And I, th I think we have an opportunity to capitalize on, on the trust we've been, you know, we've strengthened over the, this last year plus plus uh, through COVID to, to, to bring that forward. So those would be the four things that I would really kind of focus on. So you, you've just explained four areas where you think industry needs to move in order to um, progress in the cell and gene therapy space, collaboration, uh, resilience uh, um, within the supply chain, the acknowledgement that these therapies work and trust. 
I think on the back of that, I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, Point Ellis, which I believe you spearhead um, at Ernst & Young and sort of tell my listeners what you offer and what, uh, uh, what you can do for them. Yeah, please. Oh, thank you very much for an opportunity to share uh, a little bit about Point Ellis. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the complexities. We've, 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 we've acknowledged that there are uh, a lot of, of organizations and people that ultimately are going to be involved in the treatment of an individual patient uh, with these cell and gene therapies. And, 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 the, and each of these different therapies, be it allogeneic or autologous, offers a, a new level of complexity in um, getting a patient enrolled, uh, getting the product manufactured and delivered back to the patient for, for administration. And what we've, what we've learned as we've studied uh, these therapies and the growing complexities that will uh, likely unfold inside of a biopharma company is that uh, there are lots of unrelated organizations involved uh, and their systems and processes involved in actually treating a patient. And to be successful in, in actually treating a patient, there needs to be a level of collaboration amongst all of those value chain players to actually successfully treat, treat a patient. And to drive that uh, level of, of collaboration uh, to shorten time to treatment, to make, uh, you know, make the, the supply chain or the value chain itself safer and more reliable, we need to start sharing data and information amongst uh, the different value chain players in ways that really haven't been done before. And we need to figure out how do we actually uh, provide, you know, a set of information that will allow us to create these treatment journey exp experiences in a, in a very seamless way. And to do that, we just need to share information amongst uh, one another. And so what EY is, has been really focused on is how could we actually enable the safe and compliant sharing of information between value chain players to start to create those end-to-end -end seamless treatment journeys. And, and, and we're focused on actually building the infrastructure to do that. Uh, and when we talk about sharing of information, it's not sharing of all information, it's sharing that information, which will enable us to create a safe, a compliant, speedy uh, treatment experience for, for, for a patient. And, and, and in doing so, the information exchange, which we call Point Telus, is really, uh, is really focused on actually building the infrastructure on behalf of the industry to make that happen. Uh, information exchanges are not new. It may be new to our industry, but it's not new to others. And one very good example is uh, the use of ATM cards, your, your bank card. And you could go to any bank now anywhere in the world, put your card in and get currency out. Behind the ATM network in the world is an information exchange that allows you to put in some, some safe uh, uh, personal information and whoop, then you get some money coming out the back end. Uh, we're, we're, we're trying to apply that same uh, model to our cell, cell and gene therapies. And, I, and we, we believe that, you know, being able to uh, allow um, everybody to share and exchange information uh, will allow us to scale, uh, scale the delivery of these therapies to, to, to the patient populations that we expect will be needing them uh, over, the, over the next decade or so. And so Point Telus is really focused on building out that information exchange on behalf of the industry. Uh, doing that um, has uh, a few benefits. If every organization needed to rebuild that same sort of infrastructure, it probably added billion dollars to the infrastructure costs uh, of the industry, which we don't need. Uh, it allows us to, uh, again, then kind of build it once uh, and, and then share it amongst everyone. Uh, and, and, then, and then lastly, uh, again, it, it, by providing kind of a, a set of information to those that need it and, and, and can use 
it to do their jobs better, we're able to, you know, deliver these therapies in a safer and speedier way than they currently can be done today. I must say, um, you kind of alluded to this, um, that the pharma industry hasn't been the greatest historically in sharing information amongst um, themselves. Have you, uh, have you had any um, pushback from the industry at all? Or are you uh, seeing um, a positive move towards uh, the, inf- uh, the sharing of information within the cell and gene therapy space? So we've approached it um... In, in, a, in a different way that it has added a level of comfort to the various actors that are actually involved in delivering cell and gene therapies. Um, you know, the person that has the information retains ownership of it. So we're not here to capture and own the data. It's, it's, it's the data of, of, of the particular organization that's producing it. They give us some rules around how to govern it and how it, how it can be used. And then we actually uh, deliver that information to their partners in a way that makes it uh, compliant and, and, and following kind of the governance rules that, that, that are their own. What's really interesting is that the, you know, clearly one biopharma company's uh, information and how they're successfully delivering uh, their, their treatments is, is, is really important for that biopharma company, but they're all using similar couriers, for example. They're all going to uh, the same sites of care they're all going to different inter- intermediaries like leukapheresis centers or genome sequencing companies. And so, you know, it's not just the exchange of information within the four walls of the biopharma company, but it's really the collection and sharing of information of everybody that's actually involved in the treatment. And it's, it's, it's about building that infrastructure once and, and the sharing of data and information involved for a particular biopharma company in the treatment of their patient that becomes critical. And it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that infrastructure that we're talking about uh, rather than kind of the sharing between one company and, and another. That, that's good to um, <laughs> keep their minds at ease. Um, yeah. On that note, Adelaide Goldberg, I want to say thank you so much for speaking with me today. Dan, Dan it's been a real pleasure. I thank you very much for having me. Uh, very, it's uh, been uh, it's been a it's been a it's been a very enjoyable hour for a Monday morning for me, and I really appreciate kind of the conversation that we've had. Well, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, stay safe.